shows left of Heart of the Matter, L Long Show, uh, before the end of the year. And uh, just to let you know, we're going to be providing you with some other shows through the month of January. And then on February 1st, a Tuesday night, join us live because then we are going to reveal the change. Tell your friends, tune in live February 1st, Tuesday night, 8 p.m. out of Salt Lake City, Utah, as the changes in the ministry will be announced then. If it, because this is a long show, let's have a word of prayer. Father, love you and seek you, need you. Uh, grateful that you loved us, gave us your word, gave us your spirit, and most uh, most importantly, or maybe not most importantly, but all-inclusive in all of these things, you gave us your son who lived like we couldn't live so that we could be reconciled to you. And we choose to believe on him, look to him, follow him, and we pray that you will strengthen us in that endeavor. Help Wendy as she gets the show ready for people who are watching and that we'll be able to communicate something that's important in Jesus' name, amen. If you're over 50 years of age, maybe a little younger, you probably remember a very common site that was popular in the 1950s. I've talked about them before and they were called service stations. And yes, they were places where people bought gasoline for their automobiles, but the providers of the gasoline, due to the spirit of that age, thought it was important for a team of well-dressed men to surround your car, often wearing caps or hats, often dressed in all white, and doing the filling of the gasoline, along with the filling your tires with air, checking your oil, washing the windscreen, and asking you if there's any other thing that you needed at the time. These service stations lasted close to 30 years before someone decided that all of that was overkill when it came to selling gasoline. And perhaps... Um, they begin, and, and perhaps another way could happen. And what they did was they began to phase in that other way. But the full service station didn't automatically just end. Um, it disappeared in phases. In the 1950s, every station was a full service station. Then in the 70s, a person was kind of given the choice. You'd pull into a gas station and there would be like full service or self-service. And if it was full service, you'd pull to that gas, you pay more, and then they'd all run out and help you. That was still going on in the, in the early 70s. And then if you didn't want all that help and you didn't want to pay a little more, you'd go to the self-service. In time, full service sort of came dumbed down. And instead of a team dressed in white running out to help you, full service where people would pay a premium was some dude wandering out, you know, scratching his belly and, oh, you want full service, huh? And filling it up and you pay a premium. And people started saying, well, I don't need you to do that. I'll just do it myself. And so full service just kind of faded into the sunset. And I doubt that there are many or any full service stations left in the world today with three to five men dressed in all white running out and checking everything uh, as they were filling your gas. Instead, most every station is self-serve now at where the customer has to fill and pay for the gas uh, that they want and to check their own oil, tire pressure, and windshields 
clean them for their cleanliness. I miss the days of full-service gas stations, but I do wish in the name of biblical truth and liberation that what God said, that the world would, uh, that based on what God said, the world would rid itself of full-service church. Okay? I wish that we could push through this phase Get rid of this full-service church idea, which is man-made, just like service stations, full-service stations were man-made. And I wish church could get to the place where it saw and could see that God made relationship with him self-service. God made it up to you to decide what needed to be done, how much gas, whether to clean the windshield, whether to check the oil. God gave you the ability to understand how to do all those things and not rely on a team of men in white running out and doing it all because it just seems like the natural thing to do to somebody who's buying gasoline. That the churches, not that the churches have ever really fully served people, not usually, No, full-service church really refers to churches that demand the service, the full service, from the congregants. So I'm flipping it. I'm mixing up the metaphor a little bit. We have the service stations of old, and we have it turning into self-service. But but what the churches have done is they've made themselves... The, 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 the pastor's made himself the one who drives up in the car and the congregates are the one who come out and they wipe it and they fill his tank and give him oil. And that's what he wants to continue to go on. All right. And I'm suggesting that that should be flipped and switched and not happen. Those are what I hope to see phased out. Churches beginning today where no longer are the, the congregates serving the pastor and the staff and their dreams, but instead everybody becomes uh, self-reliant. Full-service churches exist on the principle of the congregates serving the every need of the church. Their pastors' views and visions for a mega church and, and to give money and offering and to vote time and volunteerism and their allegiance to a specific church because the pastor in God's name wants to keep that facade going as though that is what God has wanted from the beginning. In the case of service stations of the 1950s, The churches would be the cars and the pastor would be the driver and his congregation would be the men dressed in white and attending to their every need. And it would be their reasonable duty to God to treat the pastor and his fine deluxe property with devotion because to serve him is to serve God. But God established a much better way, didn't he? And we talk about it and we talk about it and yet people just pass over the passages that describe it. God described a better way, a way that places nobody in the servitude of another, but instead liberates all who come to Christ with the spirit of truth. In this setting, in the setting God created, people realize that they are personally fully capable fully capable of filling their own tanks and that the pastor is fully capable 
of existing without their help and cleaning their own spiritual windshields and checking their own levels of the Holy Spirit and the air in their tires. And they don't need a team of people doing that anymore. Nobody does because we live in an age where God has stepped in and he does the communicating directly with people. Three years ago, well before COVID, we did a whiteboard show that is called Churches Will Eventually Have to Close Their Doors. Again, this was pre-COVID, and we even warned a number of churches in the Salt Lake Valley that they had better rearrange the demands that they were putting on their people or their doors would close, okay? Three of the four that we warned, doors have closed. Just to let you know. This is the long show, and I want you to review as we get closer to wrapping this year up, 17 minutes of what we said on that show. Take a look. Okay, let's go to the board and take a look at this. Churches will close their doors forever. I said that. Ultimately, it may be in a a month, it may be in 10 years, it may be in 30 years, we'll see this. But ultimately, the churches in America will begin to shut their doors because of a number of factors. First, the first spoke, I'll just put number one right here. They cannot maintain. They will not be able to maintain the course that they're on. Our histories of civilization show this, as do studies in business models. There has to be an increase in performance. Uh, The Epicureans, the Greeks, showed that when it comes to pleasure, entertainment, there has to be a steady increase or else there'll be a drop-off of participation. So if you have uh, 400 monkeys juggling fireballs, the next week you have to have 500 amputated monkeys uh, juggling fireballs. You see, you have to increase the output to maintain what you have. And the, at the rate we're going, if we want to keep Jesus in the mix, that's not going to be possible. The churches won't be able to maintain. Let me give you an example of this from music history. There is a band, you may know them, The Doors, led by a guy named Jim Morrison. Their first concert, Jim Morrison was so fearful that his voice wasn't sufficient, that he sang with his back to the audience and he sang to his drummer. And when he did a few things, the crowd went kind of crazy. And so Morrison was known for putting on as big of a show as, as the music was. And in time, the band said it became, we have to satisfy them with more coming from Jim than the music. The people weren't even showing up for the music anymore. They were showing up for the spectacle. So churches, this isn't possible if they want to remain his. You see, so they're, they're developing their own uh, problem. People who cut their teeth on religious show uh, will have a difficult time remaining. All right, the second one. Uh, Number two, that they won't, is millennials. Now, this is uh, the the generation that is young and vibrant today. They, They say that what millennials want is value. That's the thing that drives millennials more than anything else. They want a bang for their buck, so to speak. And they are very suspect of, uh, 
biblical tenets that are hollow in their ears, and I'll just say it, they're suspect of old school thinking, like the ark contained every animal on the face of the earth, including dinosaurs that were shrunk down to be this big so that they could fit, and, uh, or that it, the, the water covered Everest, uh, and, and it was gone in the 10 days or whatever the number of days that it says in the scripture, those types of things. Now, you can be a good Christian and you can understand those things from a more scientific perspective. And it doesn't mean you're not a person of faith. It just means you're looking at a more reasonable explanation of what, what happened. Well, the millennials, they don't like this stuff. Plus, they, the way they think is I'm giving an hour of my time to, to participate in something. I want an, an hour of value added to my life of the thing I'm interested in. And if they don't get it, they don't participate. So the millennials are going to make it tough for the churches to stay there. The next one, this is a big one, and that is government intervention. So here's the next one, government. Let me explain. Uh, marriage of homosexuals. Churches decided a long time ago that it was in their purvey, uh, purview to perform marriages for heterosexual people. For some reason, that has been passed on as being the thing that pastors and, and reverends do, and they've made it part of their, well, I'll have a church wedding. Well, when you live in a society that is getting more and more uh, bent on everything being equal and there being politically correct speech and everything else, the homosexual agenda, when marriage becomes legal for homosexuals, it's going to be really tough for churches to keep their doors open if they refuse to marry homosexuals. And so hate speech will be leveled at them. And the, if that happens, there will be an elimination of tax-exempt dollars. And when there's an elimination of tax-exempt dollars from big churches... And people giving, they just don't get any benefit from it. Remember value from the millennials. That income source is going to dry up. And the big mega churches are going to have to sell their souls in order to keep the show going. They're going to have to get rid of anything they once stood for because they won't be able to keep, uh, keep up. So that's going to cause uh, budgets to fail and that will cause uh, doors to close. The next one, and this is a big one, we see it all around us, and I just call it corporate sway. What do I mean by that? Volunteerism and fundraising is going to uh, more and more be taken from the coffers of the church, and the corporations are going to take that over. They're already doing it. That for every dollar you spend at Home Depot, you'll have 50 cents go to the Lost Children's Fund of Nairobi. And, or feed this, or do that, or J.C. Penney's holding a march for the homeless in the park. I mean, and corporate dollars and corporate sway with their national attention is going to grab more and more volunteerism. So the churches aren't going to be able to, there's going to be more volunteerism and money donations done by the corporations than the churches have ever gotten. It's happening now because 
We have a socialized group of people who want to give back. It's part of the millennials idea of what it means to be human. So everyone wants to give back and they want to contribute. Remember the word value? They want to contribute to causes that gives them value. So if they spend $5 at a movie theater, well, let's say $50 at a movie theater, and they find out that 10% of that is going to go to a common good of saving uh, silver-tailed foxes, they will go to that movie theater instead of the other one. They want value. So when they show up to church... And they hear that, the, that what they're giving to the church is supposed to help this one group. And yet they can go to work and they can give the same amount. And it will do much more because of corporate matching. You're going to see corporate sway affect what Christian churches in America have kind of built themselves on. And that's we are the uh, provider and funders of all good things to people who need it. So corporations are becoming the new church of social engineering and they do it better and, and they can actually have to do it more honestly because of their bookkeeping requirements and, uh, where churches may not. So giving and donations are happening everywhere and unless the churches provide that added value, uh, they're not going to be able to compete with corporate sway. Then finally, there is a society at large. And what I mean by that is uh, communicable diseases that to gather together in huge places. Right now, there's forms of hepatitis that cannot be cured. There's forms of tuberculosis. We do not have medicines to cure those. And so gathering together in big monolithic churches with, you know, if you put 10 people in a room and no one has a, and one person has a cough, you can kind of deal with it. You have 10,000 or 5,000 people in a room and 70 of them have coughs, you spread much quicker. So the large model is going to, there's just going to need to be a few of those outbreaks. Another one are the shootings. We have the psychos come in and they shoot up a public place of worship. They've done about four of them recently in the past couple of years. And so that happens enough. What do the churches need to do? They're going to need to get their money that they're getting for themselves. And they're going to have to put it into uh, metal detectors and security and patrol. And pretty soon that model will break down. So society as a whole isn't, it is, is, uh, going against the model of church that we are doing. So to me, this leaves the churches, these things leave the churches with three choices. The first one is try and retain their power and influence by adaptation. The second one is try and remain without any modification at all. Do nothing but what you're doing. Or the next one is begin to implement some immediate changes that will benefit the people. They, will, they may not benefit the church, but they will benefit the people. If the church is deconstruct and they use their assets now to help with funding house churches or smaller gatherings, and they help with providing materials and things like that, and the people can fellowship and talk, and they provide with all that stuff, that would be a shift that would be beneficial to the body today. But if they refuse to do that, let me just try to talk about trying to retain power, and uh, they're going to have to cut down on Jesus. They're going to have to cut down on the biblical idea altogether, which will confirm more than ever that what, what churches really are today, they are social clubs. That's what they have 
really become if Jesus isn't taught, they aren't fed the word, they aren't worshiping and leaving filled. So, and, and if you look around, people say, well, I belong to the social club of Presbyterianism. I belong to the social club of a Wesleyan. I belong to the Mormon social club. People love that one because it has so many benefits. I belong to this social. So really they're social clubs. And you say, as a member of that club, I adhere to what they teach. And that's really all it really is. So uh, there will be a correlation seen in churches of the future. The more the Bible is taught in churches, the more the Bible is taught, the, uh, the, the less that will be derived for the church. There's an inverse relationship. The less the Bible is taught, the more income and support they will receive. Mark my words. Now, I don't know when it will happen, but you know, when it comes to like, when I was a stockbroker for 13 years, that's what you do. You assess the economy and you look at stocks and you say, this is how, this is what's coming with this. I think this is a good thing. And I wasn't too bad at it. And so I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm not saying anything. I am just looking at the signs and saying churches now need to make the change. Churches that want to retain power will have to openly and accommodate this world. They have to perform things that 20, 30 years ago, they would never touch if they want to keep their doors open. That includes everything to do with the LGBT4 Evan 7, whatever that is. They have to stay up. They will have to constantly give to people what they want. When the group says, we want to participate in this, the pastor will say, yes, the Lord has told me that's the best thing. Or the being upstairs has said it's the best thing. Or I have a feeling it's the best thing. However dumbed down it gets. And they will need to use their resources to protect the flock from physical harm. This is coming. Bottom line, churches in the future will have to sell their souls if they want to retain the power structure that they currently have. Second, if they try to stay the course of spiritual mediocrity, of teaching the Bible verses sometimes, and you know, being a church but not being offensive and, and, and not doing too much on either side, uh, go to Europe and look at the beautiful churches that are strewn across that country that are almost all empty. That's what we will have here. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's going to be one or the other. So those who try to just kind of stay where you are, you're, you're headed for doom. I'm telling you. All right. Finally, if they are in the name of Christ willing to change, this is what they will have to decide to do. The churches use their every meeting to fill people with the word of God. There's no playing around anymore with all this stuff. That's what churches are for. That's what shepherds do. They feed the flock the word of God. And so that the principles fall into the heart of the believers and the believers support and attend and congregate with that church because they're being fed. All right. This will cause attendance to drop in your church. You will see attendance drop, and that means you will be forced to watch those churches that get bigger 
who change and adapt to the world bigger and stronger, while you who were once big are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. That's what happened with uh, Armstrong's church. When uh, Takach came in and said, listen, we are going to start teaching the Bible and we're going to get more to who Christ is, their numbers and their money fell dramatically. But the leadership said it's worth it to make the change. As your attendance falls, you will downsize on your material approaches to church. No more juggling monkeys. No more stuff. You have chosen to arm the people who want to be there with the word of God. Millennials, if they don't feel like they are getting value, they may not come at all. Who knows? You will begin to cut back on your overhead. You're going to eliminate staff. You're going to rethink what you are actually feeding the people. You will announce that you will no longer pass a plate. You're not going to have tithes. You're not going to make people feel like God wants you to give them, uh, give you money when the bag comes by and everyone's looking to see, do you put it in? And you be like this poor guy I know who always reaches in his pocket, grabs nothing, puts it in the bag, opens his hand, takes his hand out, and, and then acts because he feels so embarrassed to be sitting on the pew and not doing that. How could that be right, right? Uh, you will encourage all people to remain in the word and completely support their liberty in him. And you will send them out into the world to be Christians. You will not occupy their life to serve your church, to sweep your floors and, and groom your surroundings and do all the certain vo volunteer jobs that churches do to make themselves feel important. And in this, you will downplay your position as an authority figure. And you will make yourself a humble servant who is there to try to feed and help. And in time, you will be forced to move your operation to a dumbed-down location, possibly to a home, possibly to a living room, possibly to a local library. And you may even have to go the house church model. You will teach the Bible for what it actually says. And you will teach people and encourage people in their walk with Christ. And in humility and in difficulty, uh, you will uh, become more meek week in and week out. And finally, you will allow all people to come and they will believe what they want. They will exit believing and hearing what they want to take with you because they do anyway. You're going to get rid of all the authority of policing your flock. And your job will be to just teach the word and then serve those people. Whatever path you choose as a pastor, one of those three are probably going to be it. You're going to try to continue to adopt. And if you do, you're going to sell your soul. You are going to try to maintain the course in straddling the world with some Jesus and some not and all this stuff. You're going to, you're going to go away or you're going to change. And I am suggesting so strongly you change. But one way or another, and in some form or another, the doors will be shut. While some of these observations have already proven true, you know, uh, and some may prove to be true or false in the future, please understand that the central message of what we said in that show was a message given by God himself, albeit indirectly, all the way back to the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, when he said to true Israel, remember, true Israel are not the circumcised. True Israel are not of the bloodline. True Israel are those who have faith. So God said to true Israel the following. And I say it a lot because we need to hear it a lot. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, 
that I will make a new testament. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who's true Israel? You know, those of faith. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, back way back then when I emancipated them from Egyptian control, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. This covenant's not going to be like that one, he says. But this is the covenant, the testament, that I will make with the house of Israel in those days. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and will write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will remember their iniquity and I will remember their, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Where is this age? This age that God calls the New Testament. It's the age after the former age is done away with. That's where it is. It's when everything of the former age was wrapped up. And then we live in this age of subjective, spiritual, self-service religion where the individual seeks God and God through the Spirit reaches them. That's where it's at. It was a message central to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14 when he said, As for the man who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions. One believes he he may eat anything while a weak man eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who abstains, and let not him who abstains pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed him. And he says, who are you (coughs) to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the master is able to make him stand. One man esteems one day as better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observe it with honor to the Lord. He who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While he who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and he gives thanks to God. None of us live to himself. None of us die to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ lived and died that we might be the Lord, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Listen, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we shall all stand to them in that day before the judgment seat of God. So let us no more pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Unclean. If your brother is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. 
Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So don't let your good be spoken of as of evil. All right. So he clearly points out that in Christ, there is no judgment. There is no finger pointing. This is not part of this community. We don't need brick and mortar edifices that are calling people out. We don't need pastors who are overseen saying, know the Lord, know the Lord, for all will know me, he says. You understand? Remember what Jesus came to do as he said, citing Isaiah and assigning it to himself when he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and set at liberty them that are bruised at liberty. Remember that Paul spoke of the glorious liberty of the children of God. Or in 1 Corinthians 10, 29, when he asks, for why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? That's a great question to ask when you have churches inserting themselves and telling you what you must believe and how you must live and what you must do. Or when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, now the Lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Or when he says in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Or when he adds 12 verses later, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but love and serve one another. The liberty that is spoken of in all of these places is established in the day when the writer of Hebrews says the following. It's not easy text, but listen to what he wrote. You, Christians, have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God. Where's the city of the living God? It's above. It's not in the dust. It's not here on earth. You've come to the city of the living God, he says, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's the covenant God described in Jeremiah. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. And then he recites the following. Listen closely after that preamble. His voice then shook the earth, but now he's promised. God promised, the writer says. He has now promised, yet once more I will shake not the earth only, but also heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken as of what has been made meaning with hands, meaning material things, in order that what cannot be shaken may remain. Do you hear what that writer says? That God said, I will shake everything one more time in heaven and in earth, and everything that is made with hands will be shaken to nothing, so the only thing that, can, uh, that will remain is unshakable. What is unshakable in this world? Things of the spirit, things of the flesh, things of material are always shakable. 
You can shake this building down to dust. You can shake me as a man down to dust. I could go off and rob a bank or, or, uh, or do something horrible. I'm shakable. You can shake every rule. You can shake every finance board. You can shake everything about church. You cannot shake the things of the spirit that are written in the heart of those who are gods. You can't shake that. That is the kingdom upon which he has built his, his bride. I'm not his bride, his church and his body. So he says, yet once more, therefore, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Have you received the kingdom that cannot be shaken? Or are you still wandering into buildings and letting men and women tell you how to be and how to think and how to live? He says, let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. shaken and let us offer up God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He says, for God's a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. The age of material religion ended nearly 2,000 years ago, folks. It's over. It's done. It's been done. The kingdom of God comes, as Jesus said when he walked the earth, without observation. It's a kingdom that is within a person. It is headquartered above in the New Jerusalem. It's established in a person when God writes his his laws upon your heart and your mind. Everything else is shakable. Everything else was done away with. And anything that stands is of man. Men create shakable kingdoms. Men create things that can be harmed and destroyed by reputation, by wind, by fire, by sin, by greed. Men create those. God created a kingdom that can't be touched, cannot be touched. And its strength is in the fact that it can't be shaken in any way because it's within us by the Spirit. And the fruit of that kingdom is love. It's always love. Service station churches are over. They no longer function because in the end they were never supposed to be in the first place. God wants to relate to you directly in and through your heart with your troubles, with your sin, in your mind. He wants to directly interface with you and lead and guide you by his spirit and his laws, which he gives you, not man. He wants you to talk with him, learn from him and follow him as he leads, not how men and their fallible systems and their shakable sets of religious laws and buildings. He doesn't, li- he doesn't want that. He set it up, Jeremiah 31, that it would all be internal. Mormonism, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Protestantism has never saved anybody ever, anywhere. Only God's grace, only His Son revealed by the Spirit. That's the only way, right? So we don't volunteer to anyone but Christ. We don't donate to anybody but Christ. We aren't responsible to any other person or building or system but Christ. We're not members of anything but His body. The Scripture teaches us plainly and in context of historical truths proves that former age is over. Prepare yourself to exist in the new, in the age 
of the, of the kingdom that his father described. When it's everything that can be shaken is shaken and the only thing that will remain would be unshakable. A kingdom that does not come with observation. A kingdom that is within us. A kingdom that is established in the new Jerusalem above, not in the dusty brick and mortar Jerusalem of this world. That place is chaos. It has nothing to do with the way God set it up. I challenge you to emancipate yourself from the bondage of man found in religion. Go directly to the living God and live in a liberty that cannot be had in any other way. Next week, our last show for 2021.